Uh, I've decided in honor of our trip to Africa, we're going to do a church like to do in Africa, which is men get the chairs, women sit on the floor. That's right. Uh, yeah, we were we were at the uh, the liberal church. Well, not the liberal church, the white collar church. Uh, in the in the long way, Malawi, there it's a big city. It's about three million people, but it's really scattered. And so the churches, because nobody's got a car, most churches are within walking distance. And so we normally go to uh, Labadzi Trading Center Church, which is be a pretty blue collar church. And it's very traditional. Women on the right, men on the left. What country? Malawi. Uh, and then uh, they have like three sermons. Yeah, church is like three hours long. Uh, and, and then so, but this time we went to the uh, Area 46. In the long way, the neighborhoods are called areas. So they just give them numbers, they'll give them names. So Area 46 is the white, it's, it's the Brentwood of Lilongwe. It's like the new money part. Uh, and so we went to the church there. Uh, and so uh, we got the, the, one of the elders there we've known for a long time. Uh, and so uh, Moses, they all, they all, by the way, also have biblical names. Moses goes, we are a liberal church. He says, don't worry about where you sit. Uh, they're, they're liberal, sort of. Uh, when you walk in, uh, they have three sections. Women, men, mixed. So we were laughing. And then at the back, they only have chairs for about half their auditorium. On so the back they have uh, carpets on the floor. And so we said it, we came in late. I mean, it's Africa, everything starts late. So church started at nine, which really meant like 9.20. So we were, in the, we were sitting in the seats and uh, you sing for a while and they preach for a while, you sing for a while, they preach again. Uh, and then I, I stood up and looked behind me thinking, well, we were like the last people here, right? No. We were in the last row of seats, but behind us were about 75 women sitting on the floor. And it's just, men get the chairs, women get the floor. But it's, you know, it's also kind of tribal because that's the way they, when you see women anywhere sitting in Malawi, they're always sitting in a group and they're always sitting on the flat on the ground. So I mean, they feel, it's not embarrassing to them or no. sit on the floor. It's no, just, it's cultural. And so if, the, if there is one chair, the oldest man is going to get it. If there are two chairs and there are two men, they're both going to get it. If there's... If now and then age is venerated, so if there are three chairs, it's you know, the oldest man and the two oldest women. But if there's three guys and one's 18 and they're 20 and they're 60, it'd be the three guys and the women will all be sitting on the floor. It's a very uh, so, yeah, it, it's a very I mean, it's just that culture shock you get of, and it's not that. That they're just very comfortable that way, and they would be, uh, it would be, they'd be very, very uncomfortable if I if I sat on the ground and put one of them in my chair. They they they, they would not hear them. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, it, for you know values of progressive in Malawi. Yeah. Uh, but it, it was uh, yeah. We went to the service that was in Ch- uh, Chihuahua. 
They have an English service and it's Chaiwa service, but the English service was at 7 a.m. And so we didn't get there until about quarter to nine. But it's a, a yeah, it's just a very different. How long ago was that? Last week. Uh, about 10 days. And, and we, were, we were laughing. This, they were very, very proud of the fact that they have built normal toilets in Africa or squat toilets. You know, big concrete thing, a hole in the middle, and it has two little footprints to tell you where to stand. These guys were, they were exceptionally proud that when we got there, they said, oh, if you need the facilities, we have some. They had uh, two regular U Western toilets, one for women, one for men. And they were very, very proud of that. And uh, it, yeah, we, we, yeah, it's just, uh, and so they're, they're planning on building a bigger building. They probably have, that church probably has, between the two services, about 500, 550 people. I mean, churches, uh, I mean, we drove by several churches that were in the thousands. They just had very large, multiple service buildings. I'm easy. I'm an easy sell. Yeah. 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 We, we listened to it, yeah. 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 Yeah, actually, I. What? Uh, about 16, 15, 16. How many people flew with us? We, we, we fly, yeah. Our team was only 14. 14, yeah. I can say, because we all fly different ways to get there. We, we threw, flew through Johannesburg this time, and so I actually listened to Rebecca's lesson sitting in the airport in Johannesburg, waiting for our airplane. All right, let's get started. We found out you're the second best teacher in your family. I know. I've, I've said that for years. She, she's a far better teacher than I am. All right, let's stand and uh, say the Shema as we do every week. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Amen. Have a seat. Yes, it's on. Yeah, I forgot, to I forgot to record myself last time I talked. So I went, I went to listen to myself to see what I actually said and realized it was not on. But we're recording. We're good. And more importantly, my dad listens to this. He's learned how to download the, the podcast. And so he told me I forgot to record myself. All right, let's talk about Luke 18 this week. Uh, we're going to grab a couple of these parables out of here. Uh, the book of Mark and the book of Luke are actually very parallel books. Uh, the difference is Luke, if you take chapter 9 through 18 out, the first uh, eight chapters and then it goes to chapter 26, the next six are almost exactly the same as the book of Mark. What Luke does is takes a period of time and expands it with tons of parables and stories that aren't in most of the other uh, books. Uh, 
And so we're getting to the end of what they call the apostrophe section, which is the section that Luke does all this, writes all these teachings down. Last chapter. Because once you leave this chapter, you get into Jesus going back to Jerusalem and the crucifixion's narrative. Uh, so in, the, in this chapter, in order, we're going to talk about the Pharisee and the tax collector and maybe the rich ruler today. But you have to look at context. Uh, none of these parables exist because of themselves. And so you, Luke has a narrative that he is doing as he runs through this. Uh, I think that we talked about Widow and the Judge, or well, I didn't, Stephen did, a couple, three, four weeks ago. Uh, and then a lot of these are parables that we've heard a lot. Uh, Pharisee and the tax collector we talked about today. You have the children who come to Jesus. You have the rich young ruler, which is actually in multiple of the Gospels. And then you have uh, blind Bartimaeus. Uh, and so the whole context for this, a lot, a lot of times you'll hear in church, the context for this is prayer. Especially with these two parables, Pharisee and the tax collector. The context is not prayer. He is talking about prayer. But the real context uh, for all this, what, what all of them have in common? Righteousness. What Jesus is talking about in this area, all these stories are about righteousness. How do you get it? And who gives it? And how do you get it? Uh, all right, go back to week two. Theolo theology of the Jews in this area. Remember, these are books written, written about Jews. In, the, in Luke's case, it's written about Jews to, by a Gentile to Gentiles. But he's trying to explain to the Gentiles who have never really met Jews what Jews are like. And so sometimes he throws little uh, asides in his comments. Prosperity theology was probably the most widespread theology in the first century. Uh, prosperity theology is God must reward me when I keep his commandments. So the application of that is rich equals righteous. <coughs> Poor equals sinful. And, you know, because Jerry, I know I listened to Rebecca's, some of the comments. Sometimes, and so generally when rabbis taught, the rich person was the righteous person. The poor person was the sinful person. But when you go through Jesus' parables, he flips that almost every time. So keep that in mind as we go through these parables today. Uh, so let's talk about the first one, tax collector and the Pharisee. Good versus evil. All parables always have a righteous person in them because that's the person that you're going to contrast the unrighteous person with. So to the Jews, they, they, they routinely, the rabbis of that, that day had routinely uh, stories that they went to, kind of their go-to, you know, like all preacher stories. You know, no matter where you go, the preacher stories sound alike. The rabbi stories are very similar. Uh, there's lots of stories about Pharisees. Pharisees are always the righteous good, good guys because everyone wanted to be a Pharisee unless you were ignoring the Sadducees. 
everyone else wanted to be a Pharisee because they were seen as the most righteous Jews. Tax collectors who are Jewish people who work for the Romans are seen as the worst traitor to the Jews. You cannot be lower than a tax collector. Uh, which is very interesting when you think about the fact that the first gospel, Matthew, is written by who? Tax collector. Matthew was a tax collector. And Jesus pulls him as an, as an apostle. So tax collectors are universally seen in rabbinic stories as greedy and traitors. As unrighteous as you can get. I mean, they're righteous because they are descendants of Abraham. So they're probably above a Greek. They're definitely above a Samaritan, but just a little bit. But they're definitely not a righteous Jew. So, all right, here's Luke 18, 19. Luke 18, 9 through 14. And he told this parable, the Jewish version, by the way. He told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. This is Luke throwing a little uh, aside to the Greeks to explain them who the Jews were. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay all the tithes that I get. I tell you, this man went to his house justified. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes up to heaven and was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, this sinner. But God said, no, you are not righteous. This is how the Jews want this story to go. Every rabbi, when he told this story, that's how it would go. For those of you who hopefully recognize the fact, that's not the book of Luke. All right. Uh, Jesus flips the story. Uh, so verse 9 is the aside. Remember, this is a Greek writing to other Greeks about the Jews. They have no idea who the Pharisees are. They don't understand all the political nature of what's going on. So he throws this little comment in. This is what, Jesus, what this parable means. Uh, the reds go together, the greens go together, and the blues go together. So this is, a, is parallelism in this particular story. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Once again, story is exactly what the Jews are expecting to hear. He, you know, in this area, he's speaking primarily to the Jews. Uh, and so if you look at 14, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and everyone who humbles themselves will be exalted. That also is exactly what the Jews would expect the answer to be. The difference comes in the middle. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself. And then the parallel thing is the tax collector, standing some distance away, was unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, This occurs in the temple. We know that this twice a day, 9 o'clock, 3 o'clock, there is a sacrifice of atonement. During that period of time, this would have been in the, uh, the part of the temple where only Jewish men could go. There were hundreds, if not thousands, of Jews who would gather, who would pray. 
to us, prayer is a very uh, quiet, alone time for us. Culturally, to the Jewish uh, men, it was a very public time, and, and everyone prays out loud. Uh, I've, the first time they asked me to pray in Guatemala, I did not realize that everyone prays with you. So I was in Zone 18 Church, which has about 300 people. They asked me to pray. So I, I go Northern, you know, North American prayer, right? So I start praying, everybody starts talking. Of course, they're all speaking Spanish, Quiche, so I have no idea what they're saying. And, I, you know, so I just, I would pray a phrase. I thought someone was translating. I realized they're not translating. They're just, everybody is just praying. And then when I said, amen, everyone quit. And so that's the culture that you're in here, is that everybody prays during this period of, to- of atonement, during this sacrifice period. Uh, and so, uh, let, let's look a little bit deeper into this. Uh, we're talking about righteousness. What Jesus is telling in this period is, who gives righteousness? God. How do you earn it? It is not earned, it's given. That is a huge thing for the Jews of the first century, because especially the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees were all about the law, the law, the law, the law. And so the fact that you, it's a gift, it's not earned, we're going to see in just a minute, uh, lots of people have problems with that. All right, let's look at what the Pharisee says. In red, this is the I, this is all about I and me. He was praying this to himself. This actually, exactly what it says in the Greek. He's not praying to God. He is praying to himself. Yes. That is a, when you look at the translation, that is a, a one way you can translate it that's, that's clearly in that. And that's exactly what he's saying. It's all about, God, I thank you. He, he is basically telling God that he's done this, that the, the Pharisee has done this, not God. He's not thanking God that God has gifted him this. He is telling God, I thank you that I have made myself righteous. That I am not like other people. Swindlers, why does he say swindlers? Who's standing over there? Tax collector. Unjust, tax collector. Uh, Adulterers, even like this tax collector. He's kind of hitting the tax collector heavy on this. I fast twice a week. Jews are required to fast one day per year. This tells you how, and then a, some of the Pharisees would fast, instead of one day per year, they would fast two days leading up to the one day they're supposed to fast, plus the day after they're supposed to fast. So they didn't accidentally eat on the day they're supposed to fast. This guy is a hyper-Pharisee. He there, there's some question in some of the Old Testament on what days you should fast. So he fasts, uh, if I remember right, it's every Monday and every Thursday. Uh, a hyper-Pharisee would fast both those days because that way you would make sure that if you got off a week 
or something, you're always fasting on the right day. So if Phariseeism is putting, if the law is here, the law is to guide you into relationship with God. The Pharisees saw themselves as building fences around the law so you could not accidentally get outside the law. You would have to go over the fence, then go over the law. The hyper-Pharisees, this guy, built a fence around the fence around the law. So he's, he's saying, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. The law only requires you to tithe on your earnings. What this guy is saying is, uh, as a Pharisee, it was not unusual that he would be given gifts of food by people that he taught. So the farmers would have tithed on that food. So it was already tithed food. He did not have to tithe on that. What he is saying here is, I am tithing on the tithe. Just in case you messed up and did not tithe correctly, I'm going to tithe for you. So he is as legalistic as you can get. And uh, what the people would see in this period of time is they'd look at him and go, wow, this is the man. This is who I want to be. Because he is the most righteous person that we know. He is saying us out loud. He's standing off by himself because he says he stood and was praying to this to himself. He's doing this. I mean, as loud as he can, praying this out loud. Compare this to our friend, the tax collector. Uh, let's go back to there. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And he won't even lift his eyes up because typically in those days you do this when you're praying. He won't do that. He has got his head down. He is beating his chest. That in, in that culture at that time was uh, what you would do if you were in mourning. You, you would, I mean, uh, you see scenes in the Old Testament of uh, people that died and they had the people that would follow them and wail. They'd beat their chest, tear their clothes and wail. That's what he is doing. He is sitting in this public assembly, basically like this, and just bowing down saying, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the interesting part of this is this. Uh, he said, be merciful to me, a sinner. Actually, the, the Greek is actually not the sinner, a sinner. Uh, the word he uses here is not this Greek word isn't, which is to have mercy. This is, it's translated almost all English Bibles, mercy. The word he uses here is hilasthik, which is the word God be atonement for me. This is during the atonement sacrifice. So the priest is up sacrificing the sheep at this very moment this guy's talking. And what he is asking God to do is Make atonement for me. Atonement means someone comes in and takes your sin away. He, or someone makes the payment for your sin. That's what he is asking. Not, don't be merciful to me. Take my sin from me and pay. And the, 
all the Jews would recognize that word when Jesus says this, because he is not saying, this is actually the Greek word of the, of the Aramaic word that Jesus used. But the word Jesus used is uh, atonement. And, if you, and we're, we're talking about the, the guy that we, Kenneth Bailey, collects Syriac and Aramaic translations. The Syriac and Aramaic translations all say atonement here, which is interesting enough. They, all, they don't say mercy, they say atonement. Uh, so what, what we have here is the... Uh, go back up. So you have the tax collector saying, God, make an atonement for me. Take, take, stand in the place of my sin. And so what you have Jesus then saying is, the, the man, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, and then he flips it. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, those who humble themselves will be exalted. So he is changing that dynamic that prosperity theology, if you will, that you can earn your way to heaven by saying, no, it's an atonement. It is a payment that somebody else makes for you. In this case, it's God making the atonement for you. God is making you righteous, not your works. So everything that this Pharisee does does not make him righteous. And at the same time, everything that this tax collector does, who is the worst of the worst to the Jews, God has just made righteous. He has made atonement for him. So this parable, as you go through Luke, he flips everything. So everyone's expecting one answer. Jesus gives them a totally different answer, which is the tax collector is the righteous person in this parable. Uh, not quite yet. You're almost there. He almost starts. I mean, he's kind of talked about it, but in this series, God is the person who determines righteousness. Because if you read the atonement versus mercy, there is kind of that hint that I'm going to say this later on. Well, at the start of the next chapter, Jesus starts talking about the fact I need to go to Jerusalem because. I'm going to be crucified because I'm going to become the atonement at this point. He's, he's talked about it, but clearly the, the apostles do not get it. Because we'll talk about that in like two seconds. Because the, uh, the very, the, ne the, next, the next story he talks about, there's a little aside in here about the children that come to him. And Jesus basically says, you know, don't bar the children. Unless you become like the children, you cannot... <laughs> go to heaven. And that is also about righteousness. Children are righteous because they don't know any different. And that's what he's saying. And then we come to the next story. Maybe, there we go. Luke 18. Rich young ruler. This is, it's not an accident. These stories are back to back to back. Because again, to the Jew, who is the most righteous guy in this story? Rich young ruler. Who do you want to be if you're a Jew? Rich young ruler. He's a ruler. He's in charge. He's rich. And he's young. So you, you know, And then uh, we know as we go through there, we'll talk about this. A certain ruler, Luke doesn't say rich. 
It doesn't say young, but he just says certain. The other uh, parallel passages will say he's rich and young. So, to, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why? Prosperity theology again. It's all about works and doing the right things to force God to give me eternal life. We know this guy, by the way, is not a Pharisee. And we know he's not a Sadducee, which makes it a little unusual for Jesus during this period of time. He's definitely not a Sadducee because what do Sadducees believe? There is no eternal life. So there's no way. So if this guy is a Sadducee, it's a trick question. Jesus and the, uh, this parallel and the parallel passages does not treat this as a trick question. Because he has a very short fuse when the Pharisees come up to him and throw tricks at him. So this guy is not a Sadducee. So he's not, he is not a Jewish priest. Uh, he's also not a Pharisee because as we see through here, uh, in just a minute, I will explain to you why he's not a Pharisee. Uh, good teacher, by the way, is just a, uh, the answer is, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. That, that is a cultural phrase of, he says that to Jesus, good teacher. What he's expecting back is, oh, good sir. Basically, if you uh, raise your teacher up high, he is supposed to respond to you and say, thank you, oh, oh wise young man. Some other compliment like that. Jesus does not compliment him. Why do you call me good? I mean, that was not the answer he was expecting. Uh, no one is good except God alone. And he's not saying good teacher as in you are the Messiah. He is basically saying uh, rabbi. You are a teacher rabbi. What he really says is good rabbi. He's not saying Jesus is the Messiah. He is saying you're a rabbi. Let me ask you a question. Uh, and then why do you call me good? Boom. Just, you know. What, what are you looking for here? Uh, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You will honor your father and mother. If it was a Pharisee, Pharisees direct, dressed very differently. It would have been obvious he was a Pharisee and he walked up and it goes without saying that the Pharisees keep the Ten Commandments. Uh, so what Jesus is throwing out here is that uh, you know the commandments. This is kind of a little back and forth. And I have kept all these since I'm a boy. He is legalistically keeping these commandments. Uh, the key to these commandments is that they're not just Ten Commandments. Each of the commandments is really a gateway to your attitude in a certain area. Uh, you know, I, thou shall not covet. It's not just, I'm not going to covet. It's are, are you generous in your life? Do you do things that are not, you know, it's not stealing, but it's kind of shady. All those are, if you look at the, old, the Ten Commandments, they all basically expanded the other 613 commandments that are in the Old Testament. They're all basically subgroups of the Ten. And so what he is answering is, I've done the Ten. And then Jesus hones in very quickly 
on the one thing that he is not. Uh, you still lack one thing. Sell everything that you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Uh, and when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. So that, that's a... You, you've heard a thousand sermons on wealth and bibli biblical based on this. Uh, we'll talk about a couple things here. Uh, how hard is it for a rich to enter the kingdom of heaven? Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. All right, we're going to come back to that in a second. What you have to see is what's the apostles' response to this? Peter, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. What is Peter's, what is Peter's expectation at this point? What are the apostles' expectation at this point? Left the right hand of exactly. Because the very next story after this is... James and John's mother coming to Jesus and going, hey, when you come into the kingdom, can they be right, number one, number two? Peter's saying, wait a minute. We spent the last three years sleeping in barred homes, sleeping in the dirt, eating whatever people give us because we want to be righteous. And righteous equals what? Rich. We want, we're expecting that you're going to have, because Jesus has been telling them, I'm going to Jerusalem. What are they expecting when he goes to Jerusalem? The start of the kingdom. That he is going to start the revolution that's going to put Jesus as king. And then you have the 12 guys underneath him. And we all know their names. And they're going like, hey, I know what the Sadducees, I know, trust me, at this point in time, Peter is figuring out which house he's going to live in in Jerusalem. He's going, I've been to Jerusalem. I've seen the high priest's house. It's really nice. When Jesus kicks the high priest out, if I'm number one, I get to pick my house. So Peter is saying, wow, we're going to have the really nice house in the really nice neighborhood. And then... Uh, Jesus comes back to him. It's, it's during this period of time, you constantly see, even, even after three years, they're still in the concept of prosperity theology with him. That the rewards are going to be here. They're going to be massive. They're going to be rich. They're going to be powerful. And Jesus comes back, well, I tell you, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age or in the age to come, eternal life. So Jesus kind of answers them with, it, you're going to get rewarded. It may not be the way you think it is going to be, which according to the theology of the day is houses and lands and crops and wife and children and power. But he says you're going to have it. All right, any thoughts about that? I have a question about verse 18. Inherit is a family thing, isn't it? Isn't it in this context? And the, and the, uh, 
rich young ruler, uh, the ruler is uh, juxtaposing performance with relationship here. Is that, does, is there a significance? Yeah, I mean, what he, understand he is saying, I am a son of Abraham. Everything to the Jews is about being the sons of Abraham. And as a son of Abraham, because Jesus, if Jesus is the Messiah, he is going to establish a kingdom that was just like back in David's day, where we're in control of everything. And uh, this concept, the, the word inherit there is right. It's because he's going, I am a son. He is basically saying, I am a son of Abraham. And I'm going to, once again, I'm going to force God to inherit me because I'm going to do the things that force him to give me this inheritance. So it's, it's back to the, it's a very works concept of here's what you're going to do. And because I do this, God must do this. And Jesus is trying to flip that around to say, no, God rewards you. Because, you know, the first story in here was about the unrighteous judge and the, and the persistent widow. And, he, and Jesus is saying, God will reward you because he loves you. And that's why he will send an atonement for you. Who's going to be me? Jesus. But the, uh, it's clear at this point the apostles don't get that yet. And they will... But it's going to be like the day, three days after the crucifixion. They're going to get it. And, you know, it's like you say, it's, you could tell by some of the writings, because we have the advantage of we're looking at this. We know the whole story. You have to look at this as the apostles are going along. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about camels going through the eye of the needle. Uh, ever, how many sermons have you heard about... Uh, the camel, that, the eye of the needle is really this trail. The eye of the needle is a passageway in Jerusalem. Uh, pick, pick your stuff. Uh, I'll, I'll give you maybe an easier version of that. Uh, in Jesus' day, there was a rabbinic saying for hyperbole about it's easier for an elephant, they knew what elephants were, elephant to go through the eye of a needle. The, so a lot, of quite, a lot of guys who comment on this say, why did Jesus change the uh, story? Because the, the people have been very familiar with the rabbinic story of the hyperbole of elephants and needles. The, uh, if you look at the, like I said, you have to look at culture. If you look at the Aramaic translations of this, the Aramaic word for camel and rope is exactly the same word. Because all ropes in the Middle East in this section were made out of camel hair. So rope and camel are the same word. You have to, you have to determine what its usage is by context. Because remember, Jesus is speaking Aramaic, which then gets translated into Greek. Uh, and so if you look at the Syriac and the Aramaics, all from the 400s to the 800 AD translations, they universally use the word rope here not camel. And uh, the concept of rope, you can get a rope, and this is back to another rabbinic saying that occurred at the same time. You can get a rope through the eye of a needle. Uh, 
but you got to take it apart to do it. You can't, so a rich, so a, it, is a, it was a common saying in those days that rich men are like ropes. They have lots of things that are wrapped around that make them strong. Poor people are like threads, easily broken and very thin. So, but to get a rich man through the eye of a needle, you need to take that rich man apart down to his basic parts that will fit through the eye of the needle. So in the theology of the day, it was that you were, you were rich not because you want to hold on to riches. You are rich because you should bless all the other people around you. That is why, you are, that is God, why God has given you riches. Is that so you can bless your family, you can bless your neighbors, you can bless your town. So the concept of if you take some of those threads off a thick rope, which is the rich man giving away some of his things, he'll fit through the needle. So that actually is a rabbinic saying from that time, which actually makes a whole lot more sense than trying to get a camel through the passenger door, the pedestrian door in the city gate which is one how some people have tried to do this. But that just comes around to the concept of cultural and words, uh, the fact that rope and camel are exactly the same word in Aramaic, and in Greek, they're the same other than one has an E and one has an I. And so if you have a bad Greek copyist, camel becomes rope and rope becomes camel very easily. So I, I think what Jesus is saying here is rope through the eye of the needle, which actually makes sense. Uh, but it's still the same thing of it's difficult. Because if you are trusting in your own money, it is very difficult to trust in God. Because, you know, when things go bad, you just go to the barn and you have more food to eat. And so that, that, that is a, was a very common rabbinic teaching of the time is that poor people trust in God more than rich people, which is actually the same thing today. Because you look, we were just talking about, we were just in Africa. When you go to the, uh, what we call the blue collar parts of town, there are churches everywhere. When you go to the rich part of town, the only church is a really big uh, CCAP church, uh, which is uh, Christian Church of Africa Presbyterian, which is kind of like in Central America, everybody's Catholic. In East Africa, everybody's CCAP, regardless of where you go. Uh, and so the CCAP is a very formal, large church. Uh, and so the rich people all go CCAP. Everybody else goes to some other church. And, but when you go to the poor sections of town, there are churches everywhere. When you go to the rich section of town, like I said, there's, there's only one church. And so that, that's kind of that same concept of the rich people tend to trust God less because they have more, they have more insulation from the bumps of life. All right, any questions, comments? Is South Nashville and Brentwood CCAB? Oh yeah, without doubt. So, I mean, uh, we, 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 we're pretty made, if you look at us, we would be pretty wealthy. I mean, as you, uh, last, this week I noticed that uh, Williamson County is the seventh wealthiest county in the country. Uh, so it's a very interesting, uh, actually I was uh, 
reading the news this morning, uh, there is a uh, Unitarian church in Seattle that's a huge church. And they have a bunch of houses that sit on their property that they currently have homeless people living in. And uh, they just made the decision to uh, evict, the city basically, they wanted to redo their building. They have a $17 million budget on their redo of their building. The city came to them and said, oh, by the way, these houses are not code. If you bring your building up, if you do anything in your building, you have to bring these houses to code. It will cost $300,000, give or take a little bit, to make these houses code on a $17 million budget for the redo. And so the church, uh, I loved it, such a, such a church saying, they sat on that for a year and said, we're going to have a season of discernment. Uh, and then they called the homeless together last week and said, we have decided after the season of discernment that we are much more comfortable on advocacy for the poor rather than direct action. So we're having to tear the houses down. We're going to pave them and make them a parking lot. And I, and I was reading this at the same time saying that is exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Is, yeah, I, I love the fact, the season of discernment, and we're, we're advocates for the poor, but we, we're very uncomfortable with direct action of actually taking care of the poor. We're going to advocate for you at the city hall, but we're going to kick you out of the houses that we currently own, and you're going to have to find another place to live. So, I mean, so you see that today. And, uh, so it's a very, uh, I mean, I saw that this morning in the, new, in the news. Yeah. Yes. In uh, considering Jesus' response to Peter in 30, and it does seem strange that he refers, that he says this in light of the pattern that he's been following uh, throughout the, this parable. He says... Uh, he refers to them as getting back very much more in this age and in, and in the age to come eternal life. It seems as if he is giving them, giving the prosperity uh, doctrine a little bit of, um, of a nod in this direction there. Seems from the words. Seems from the word. I, yeah, I think it's so one of those. When, when you continue this on, what the gift that he is going to give them, it, it becomes the, it's not only the Holy Spirit, but it's this, uh, this entire church family that becomes so much more than things. So what he's telling them is that you're going to get a bunch, you know, because you think about, fast forward, uh, this is probably uh, two months before the crucifixion. Fast forward two months plus 50 days uh, on the Pentecost. All of a sudden, these guys are now the center of a church that has thousands. And that they gain much more, but it's not in 
they are blessed beyond belief, but it's not in the way that no, they. Oh, he it, heard it, those words. Oh, it's it's it. He said, "We left how, uh -huh. we left white, we left brothers," and I, I think that's a fine explanation. Except, I wonder how Peter understood those words. It's almost as if he's throwing a bone his direction and saying, "You're you've left all that," and as they so often fail to understand the spiritual implication of it, it seems as if he's. That well, I mean, there, there's no doubt, because if you go to Mark, the story after this in Mark is James and John's mo mother coming to him. It's the thing yeah, of, right. Jesus flat out says, I'm going to Jerusalem to be crucified. The next story is James and John's mother coming to him and going, hey, when you become king, can we have number one, number two? So clearly they did not understand it as opposed to the way they did on the Sunday when he arose. Yes. And I said, our advantage is we see, we, we've, seen the, we've seen the whole story in 2,000 years, as opposed to as they're going along. Yeah, I, I think he's said it in a way that, I, I'm not sure that the Aramaic, to the Greek, to Latin, to English, Makes, I don't think he said it the way that we, this is translated. Well, uh, the translator of the text is going to do the best right. they can to translate it in such a way that it conveys the meaning. What, what the they text. think, yes. So that's the responsibility of the translator to do that. And of course you have to rely on the translator or your own translation for that, but uh, anyway. That it just seemed that he was feeding the prosperity gospel thing a little bit of a nugget. There. Right, yeah, I, but given the fact that the three previous stories are him hammering God, yeah. prosperity, I don't think it was translated that way. And I think when you, know, when you look at the arc of the story, it's clear that what Jesus, what the apostles understand dramatically changes. You know, because, you know, you know, we, we know Peter's going to deny him three times. And then 50 days later, he is the center of this revival start of the church. So, I mean, they, they clearly uh, have, a, have a fulfillment in their knowledge that occurs around the day of Pentecost. I just, I, mm. I see what you're saying, but I don't think Peter would have understood any better for him to say clearly... Mm. Right. For him to say clearly, you will receive many times in this age. You will receive a family that is in the thousands. You will receive the Holy Spirit. You will, you know, he could have listed all those things. Just like he said, I'm going to be crucified. They wouldn't have heard it. They wouldn't have understood it. Well, well I mean, they didn't. Because Jesus flat out says, I'm going to be crucified. And then Peter's going, oh, no, no, Lord, uh, you're clearly mistaken. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is Peter, you know. And he's going to tell Jesus multiple times, you're, I don't think you got this right. I know you're the son of God, but you don't have this right. Sounds like us. Yeah, it sounds like us a lot, yes. The, yeah, I know you're the God, but let me, let me tell you the better way to do this. All right. Uh, yes. Yeah. Can you say 
so it sounds like <coughs> not only one rich young ruler, but there must have been other people. Well, yeah, th this is clear. He's, he's well, walking and teaching. Yes, yeah, yeah. That I think were wealthy. Oh. There were a lot of wealthy people, not just the disciples that were around. Makes me think that. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, he's clearly getting a cross-sectional area of, of people here. And once again, everyone's, because if you're rich, you're righteous. If you're poor, you're sinful. You want to be rich. And so even the poor people, before they died, wanted to be rich because they would know, therefore, they were righteous. And so to them, that's like, he has just totally flipped everything they've ever learned on his head right here by saying, wait a minute, rich does not equal righteous. And so there are rich people that aren't righteous. And so there's a, everyone that heard him would have just, he would have just flipped everything that they had thought about for their entire life. And then the other thing that's kind of flipped is when he replies, what is impossible with man is possible with God. I mean, that just sort of flips the whole right. message, too. Because again, he's coming back and saying salvation, atonement, comes from God. It's not what you can do. God is going to give you atonement. And that's, once again, a total flip on everything. that They've been, they've been on a works theology all along. So everyone's about how, what can, especially the Pharisees, you know, let, let, me, let me do all the right works so that I am righteous. And Jesus is flipping going, no, you're righteous because God says you are righteous. And then you, you act because God has made you righteous. You don't earn your way to righteousness. You become righteous and then act that way. And that's such a flip for everyone that he's here, that's hearing this that you, you just see, the, you see this story over and over and over again through this chapter 9 and chapter through 18 part of Luke is him just hammering on this every time, flip, basically flipping the narrative. All right. So is he saying that even if you do this, that's not good enough? Because you're being given the atonement. So even if you do give away everything, that doing does not earn it. Does not earn it. Anything. it right. You're being given what? the atonement regardless of what, what you do. Doing. What he's telling the rich, he knows the rich young man, the barrier between the rich young man and being righteous is this wealth. And so he's trying to tell you, you got to remove that barrier because what's he say? Not that you will be righteous, but you got to come and follow me. In the following Jesus is when you, when you become righteous because it comes attributed to you from God that you're righteous. It's very circular. It's very difficult to understand. It all comes down to what's your motivation. Yep. Um, you know, because Abraham, what's the whole thing in Hebrews 11, all the faith people? I mean, Abraham was very rich. He was blessed by God. I mean, all of them down the line. Right. Isaac was rich. Jacob was rich. Uh, David was rich. Solomon was rich. They followed him in faith or because, uh, you know. Right. It's, it's that. Right. Thing. So, and I, you can see very easily how people say, well, if you're rich, you're righteous. Because Abraham, I'm a child of Abraham. He was rich. I'm a child of Isaac. I'm a child of Jacob. Rich, rich, rich. Instead of looking at the other way, which is the reason they are rich, is because they were righteous, and God blessed them. And so it's it's the chicken or the egg. Which one comes first? Are you righteous because you're rich, or you are you, do you become wealthy 
because you're blessed because you're, God makes you righteous and bless you. And the rest of the New Testament is Paul and Peter and John and James saying, do this and the Lord blesses you in ways, not necessarily monetary, but it can be monetary. But you cannot earn, you can't earn your way to heaven. Story of this. All right, we're OT, so if you're going to church, go find a seat.